0: When I came back to America, I said, God, I'll go anywhere in the world except for one place. Can you guess what that one place might have been? It was the United Kingdom. It wasn't because I didn't see the need there. It wasn't because I wasn't praying for the work there. I was. But I thought that I did not have what it took to go plant churches in a place where many people say that it cannot be done. When my wife returned from the United Kingdom, she told the Lord she'd be willing to go anywhere in the world. And she meant it. uh, But God had to break some things down in my life, some objections that I had to the work that He was asking me to do. seems like oftentimes when God begins to direct our lives and our paths and give us a direction, we put up reasons why we can't do what He's calling us to do. I gave God those three objections. Maybe you've done that before. you made a list of pros and cons. Maybe you put one pro in a long list of cons. You say, God, here's my list. I can't. And that's what I said. And God began to break down those objections that I gave Him through the preaching of His Word and through the ministry of the work of His Word and the ministry of His Holy Spirit. And finally, in Ephesians chapter 3, in verse number 8, He broke down my final objection. It says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints or lower than the low of any other Christians, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Maybe you feel like I often do, that you're lower than the low of anyone else. You don't have the talents or the abilities that someone else may have. But God, by His grace and His mercy and His power, can enable you and equip you to preach Christ around the world. As we talk about the United Kingdom, I hope you gain a burden for the people over there. It's interesting, as we present the ministry, oftentimes people are looking for a a physical need. They're used to missionaries to third world countries where you see much poverty, and they see that need and they equate that with a spiritual need. But in the United Kingdom, you'll see people who look just like you. They speak the same language, although they speak it very differently. And it may be easy to assume that there's no spiritual need there, but there is. The spiritual need is great. In a place where they were once sending missionaries all around the globe, now 75% of young people say they're non-religious. They don't see a need for God. They don't see a need for church. 50% of their parents say the same. We mentioned that Islam is the fastest growing religion in the United Kingdom. And many times you'll be walking down streets there and you'll see churches that once preached the gospel are now turned into mosques. Just a few months ago in Birmingham, in a place where my wife spent four months, it's a predominantly Islamic area. You would see many of the signs would be written out in foreign languages, many of them from the Middle East. You see many mosques and you'll see Sikh and Hindu temples and all kinds of different things. You would think you were in the middle of Pakistan if you were blindfolded and dropped off there. And in that place we have a church the Lord has given us and we've been able to start a church there. Our team has. And three Muslim men approached the pastor and offered, begged him, to sell them the building so they can establish an Islamic training center there. And they were very vocal and excited about what they wanted to do. And it challenges us to think are we just as excited and vocal about what we know to be the truth. And all throughout the United Kingdom things like that are happening. And the city of Oxford is where Oxford University is located. That's where some of the world's smartest people go to study. In that city, there's a plaque in the ground. And this plaque commemorates the place where two men were burned at the stake for their faith in God and for their stand for the Word of God. Day after day, some of the world's smartest people walk over that plaque and they read the words and intellectually they know what they mean. They have no idea what would cause someone to be willing to give their life for the cause of Christ. Day after day they see that plaque. They need someone to point them to the Word of God and to the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and say that Christ working in you is the same Christ who would cause those men to be willing to give their lives for His cause back in those days. And there are people just like us who are willing to give our lives for the cause of Christ and tell them that the Gospel is still powerful today. Well, just over about 13 years ago, our team was able to plant a church in that place. And during this past year, they've been meeting out in a tent. Due to coronavirus, their building is too small. It's always been a very small building. Real estate is very, very expensive in Oxford because the university buys it all. And so during coronavirus, they've been meeting in a tent. Maybe you think for one week, that sounds great. Maybe two weeks, that sounds great. But by the time it's raining for months, it's snowing for months, it's cold, it becomes a little less fun. But they've been doing that for a year. And during that time, in a place where people say it cannot be done, in a place, in a time when people say it can't be done, their church has doubled in size. Now they're reaching several hundred people every single week with the gospel and proclaiming the word of God. They needed a place to continue the work with the Sunday school children. They tried sending them to the back of the tent, but they were too rowdy back there and there's not much room in the tent. And so they bought a single-decker Sunday school bus. And that bus doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go to pick anyone up. It's just parked in the field, and that's become their Sunday school classroom. The pastor's office is a box truck, a moving truck. And you can imagine, if we had to walk into that, we'd say, man, I don't know about this. But because of God's Word going forth, and then continuing forward in an unusual time, God is blessing that, and people are coming, and it's an encouragement to us to know that God is at work in the United Kingdom. All six of the church buildings that our team has started in the last 14 years, those churches have been given to us for free. Just buildings that at one time preached the gospel, but over time they emptied. And through a miraculous series of of events, each of them unique, God has given us those buildings. In recent days, several more church buildings have been given to us. So in the next couple years, Lord willing, we'll be going and starting many more churches all throughout the United Kingdom. There's a great need there, a great spiritual need and God is at work raising up a generation of English young people, of people who are proclaiming the gospel, and we're grateful that we get to join in that work. Sometimes as Christians we begin to think that we've got to come up with something that no one's ever thought of before, a way to evangelize the world that no one's ever dreamed up. We think up of all kinds of unique opportunities. Some of those are good. We need to think outside the box sometimes, but really our job as Christians is to see the work that God is already doing in this world and join in on that work. Because God is at work. He's at work in this place. He's at work in the United Kingdom, and He's at work all around us. And we're grateful for that work that God is doing. Our heart for the United Kingdom is not just a heart for the United Kingdom, but it's a heart that through the United Kingdom, God would reach the world. We mentioned some immigrant population in the video, and the immigrant population in the United Kingdom is is very, very large. People are coming from all over the world, from nations that we may not be able to reach as easily. And so they're coming. God is bringing them to us so that we can preach the gospel to them. One of the things that we get to do through our churches every week is hold English classes to help the immigrants learn to speak English. And to become a citizen of the United Kingdom, they have to prove a certain measure of English-speaking ability. So we hold an English class. Many times, Muslim women will come to these classes. Their husbands will never let them come to a church service. They'll never let them come to an event. But because they have no other way to learn English, they don't get out of the house very often. They'll let them come once a week to the Baptist church. There, we teach them how to learn English by reading through the Word of God. We build a relationship with them. We help them adapt to the culture. We've seen them come to Christ. And if you were to go to their country, where they're from, yes, you could reach them. God can open doors miraculously, but you may not have as free access to do what we get to do with them in the United Kingdom. And God is bringing them to us, and we hope that through them, the rest of the world will be reached. God is already opening up doors for our team in a mainland Europe. Two young people from the Netherlands, they were established in their careers. They had a house, they sold their house, gave up their jobs, and they moved to England to come be taught by our team how to go plant churches in their country and go how to reach young people in their country. So God is opening up many, many doors. And I hope when you hear that, you say, what can God do through this place that reaches out around the world? And maybe you say, God couldn't do anything through this tiny little place, this tiny little town that reaches the world, but God can. God can use this place to be a, world, a worldwide blessing, and I believe He already has in so many ways. But I want each of us to think, what can God do through my life that touches people here and around the world? And all God requires, it's not anything special, it's not anything extraordinary, it's simple faith and obedience to the thing that He has for us each and every day. And as we continue walking forward, taking steps of faith, God will use us, He'll grow us, He'll stretch us, and maybe He'll use you in a way that you could have never imagined. Maybe in a place that you would say, I would never like to go there. God will do that work in your hearts and in your lives. We have some prayer cards that we can leave with you as we leave. If you'd like, please grab those. That way you can remember us, pray for us. has our email on there. You can reach out to us. We'd love to stay in contact with you. That way you can pray for the work in the United Kingdom. We need your prayers because the work that we're doing there is not a physical work, although oftentimes we will be physically doing work on buildings, all those kinds of things. But you understand it's a spiritual work, and spiritual battles must be fought in spiritual ways and one of those things is through prayer and you can have an impact on the united kingdom even though you're here and that's a wonderful wonderful thing pray for us we're currently raising support financial support to get to the united kingdom and um, so lord willing about next spring we'll be headed over because of our visas we have to raise support um, so that way we can do the work that god has called us to do over there so pray for us as we're on this journey and getting ready to head back to the united kingdom At the end, if you have any questions about the ministry in the United Kingdom, I'd love to hear them. I'm sure you have something burning in your hearts about the ministry, living there, whatever it may be. If you think it's silly, ask it anyways. We've heard all kinds of questions. And um, if we don't know the answer, we'll just Google it, and that way we can figure it out. Um, But at this time, if you would, turn with me in the Word of God to John chapter 1. How many of you read in John chapter 1 this morning? It's okay if you didn't. Maybe you're going to read it this afternoon. Very good. I see a lot of hands around here. If you're looking around, you know that's not true, but that's okay. I'm sure you're going to read it this afternoon. But John chapter 1 is a powerful portion of Scripture. Verse number 1 through 18 is the prologue or the introduction to the book. It really lays the groundwork for what the writer of the book of John is trying to communicate. It tells us about how Christ, incarnate and robed in human flesh, came and walked on this earth to bring us into right relationship with the Father, to give us the power, the authority, the right to become the children of God. Many times we think about the Christmas story and we think of maybe an account in Luke or maybe an account in Matthew or maybe an Old Testament passage. But truly, the greatest Christmas story, the greatest relation of the Christmas story that we have in the Word of God is John chapter 1 because it gives us the theology of Christ coming to earth to walk among us, to make atonement for our sins. And it lays the foundation for what the writer of the book of John is trying to communicate. Now, the writer of the book of John, many people have many different ideas about who it was. Personally, I believe it was John the Apostle. Some people suggest John the Baptist. Some people suggest Lazarus. Some people suggest Nicodemus, all kinds of things. But the most important thing for us to realize, it is the Word of God. And as we begin to go through, we realize that the writer of the book of John, whoever it may have been, had a very unique and pointed purpose. He was a good writer. In fact, if you were reading this in the original language that was given, Greek, he uses very small words that pack powerful meanings. In John chapter 20 and verse number 31, he gives us his purpose statement. Now, as a good writer, everything that he writes brings us back to this purpose statement. Maybe you've read something before and you get to the end and you say, what was this even about? It doesn't make any sense. It's talking about all kinds of things. It seems to have multiple points that the writer is trying to get across. Well, the writer of the Book of John was not a novice writer. He was pointing us to one thing. And in John chapter twenty and verse number thirty-one, he tells us, "These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of, or that you might believe on the name of the Son of God, and that believing, you might have life through His name." He's saying, "All these things that I've written, I've written to you that you would believe." On the name of the Son of God. That you would believe on Jesus Christ. And that believing you would have life through his name. So then he begins to lay out the foundation for why someone should believe. To us, maybe we've been saved for many, many years. And we think, of course, everyone ought to believe. But there are people in this world who are seeking. There are people in this world who are searching for answers. And they have questions. Questions about why they should believe. They have questions about who Christ is. They have questions about the Bible. And as Christians, it's one of our great joys to be able to take people who are questioning, who are seeking, and take them to the Word of God and show them answers. Not our answers, but God's answers. And sometimes we try to put our answers onto people. We try to come up with our own arguments and our own thoughts. And that's easy for us to do. But it's not what we ought to be doing because as Christians, we are pointing people towards Christ, and that's what the book of John is about. It's about pointing people who are seeking, people who are searching, to the Christ, the answer for all their questions. We get to verse number 19 through 28 of John chapter 1, and we're introduced to John the Baptist. Now, this is part of the reading that you may be doing later on today, and John the Baptist is a pivotal figure, because for many, many centuries, thousands of years, The Hebrew people had had a prophet in their midst, someone who spoke directly with God and said, Thus saith the Lord, this is the word of God. Then all of a sudden, between the Old Testament and the New, things appeared to be silent. Now we know it's not silent. God was at work arranging things and ordering things, preparing things for the fullness of time when He would send forth His Son to come into the world. But there had been no prophet in their midst. a Very unusual time. And you can imagine, if you were used to that, someone who could clearly say, I've been speaking to God and this is what He has to say to you. All of a sudden, you don't have that anymore. Maybe your grandparents had told you of a time when that had happened. Or maybe you'd heard the stories. And you were looking, you were expecting a prophet to come again. There were maybe some Old Testament prophecies, then there were, that you had read. And you were thinking, somebody's going to come, a prophet's going to come. Then all of a sudden, John the Baptist bursts onto the scene. And he comes out, he's wearing leather, he was wearing camel skin and a leather belt around his waist, and he's eating locusts and wild honey, and he doesn't hold back and eat anything he says, and you would say, wow, that's the man, that's the prophet. His fame began to spread abroad. He came out of the middle of the desert, out of nowhere. All of a sudden, people began to be intrigued by who this man was. And he came with a message of repentance because Christ was coming, and ultimately, to announce that Christ had come. What an amazing job. Now as we read about the John the Baptist, even though he had some fame and people were coming to him and people were intrigued by his ministry, we read that he was humble. He didn't take any of this fame upon himself, but instead he reflected to Christ. In John chapter 1, we find three days of his ministry, three days in the ministry of John the Baptist. Verse number 19 through 28, we find day number one. And his message simply for day number one was, Christ has come. He gets to say, in your midst, there's one who you know not, and I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandal from off his foot. This was the lowest job of the lowest slave in those days. He said, I'm not even worthy to do the lowest job of the lowest person in all of society for our Savior. And that was his humility. As he was pointing people, Christ has come. Day number two, his testimony or his witness, his message was not only has Christ come, but you must look to him. Behold the Lamb of God. And day number three, his message was that you must follow him. And for each of us as Christians, as a gospel witness, as a gospel messenger, we stand with the message of John the Baptist proclaiming that Christ has come. You must look to him and he must follow him. And that's all of our task. But just like there are today, people who are searching, people who are questioning. There were people in those days who were searching and looking and questioning. In verse number 19 through 28, we find one group who They had some questions and they asked seven questions. And these were representatives sent from Jerusalem. Some priests and Levites come to interrogate John the Baptist. And they came to ask him and say, Who are you and what are you doing? They were seeking. They were questioning. But when he pointed them to Christ, nothing happened. You see, their questions were really not of a true nature. They were questioning about what John the Baptist was doing and the implications that it had upon their religious system. They didn't want to hear that they needed to repent. They didn't want to hear that they needed to trust Christ. They didn't want to hear any of these things. And these questions were of a nature that although they were asking them, they were insincere. And we find that today. There's many, many people who, though they have questions, they're insincere. They're trusting in something else. They're trusting in their system. They're trusting in what someone else has told them. But there are people who are genuinely looking. We'll be introduced to a few of those as we go throughout the rest of this passage. I remember a time as I was growing up as a boy in Oregon. I went out with a teacher of mine and several other young, young boys. And uh, we were exploring some waterfalls. A very beautiful area. Many waterfalls along this one trail. And we're going along the trail. We decided we're going to take an adventure. We're going to go off the trail, and we're going to try to get around to the top of this waterfall. And so as we struck off into the wilderness, my teacher, we all relied on him greatly. He was, you know, outdoorsy guy. He liked to rock climb and mountain bike and all those different things. He knew what he was doing, of course. So we followed him along, traipsing into the forest. Well, 30 minutes passed. We haven't quite found our way to the top of the waterfall. An hour, we still haven't quite found our way up there. An hour and a half, we're Feeling a little turned around at this point, but finally we arrive at the top of the waterfall. But now, how do we get back to the trail? You know, we're several miles out into the wilderness at this point. What are we going to do? And so we began to whisper among ourselves to the boys. I think we were probably about 12 years of age at that time. And we said, I think we're lost. It was pretty obvious we were lost at that point. Our teacher, though, he began to hear the whispers. And finally, we, we confronted him and said, I think we're lost. And he said, no way, I've got this. He trusted in all his abilities, even though he was probably beginning to be a little uncertain. He didn't want to let us know that we were lost. So we took off. We tried to find the trail again. And we wandered and wandered and wandered and wandered and wandered. And, wandered, and he would not admit that he was lost, even though he was seeking for a trail. His seeking really would not allow him to admit that he was lost or in a position that he needed help. All of us at that point, we knew that we were lost, and we wanted any help we could find. Well, eventually we found the trail, and I'm here today, so the story ended well. But there are people just like that for all of time. Those who, yes, they are lost, and maybe that doubt begins to creep in their mind, but they're trusting in their own skills, their own talents, their own abilities, their own systems, their own things, whatever it may be, and they refuse to admit that they need help. There are those, though, who are and would like any help that would come. As we seek to speak to them, what's our message? Our message is that Christ has come, and you need him. And in this next portion of John the Baptist ministry, day two and three, we're introduced to Christ and who he is. It's easy for us sometimes as Christians to get an inflated view of ourselves, and we want to promote ourselves. But the only person we have any right to promote is Christ. And when we promote Him, people are drawn to Him because He's special. He's unique. He's like no one else. Christ is a man like no other. And in this passage, we're introduced to Christ, a man like no other. In verse number 29, we see the next day, so this is day number two, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and what does he say? And saith, now think about it, if you were listening If you were in the crowd at that time, what would you think that John was about to say? He was going to announce Christ, the one that they had been waiting for. What do you think? You would have thought, definitely, without a doubt, he would say, Behold the king, the one who has come to overthrow the government, the one who has come to fulfill the prophecies of old. You would have expected him to say anything but what he said. He said, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God which cometh to take away of the world. Now think about that. What's a lamb? On its best day, a lamb is an unintelligent creature. They make a mess. They need someone to watch over them. They're really not that special. Now I had someone tell me that they really loved baby lambs. They loved looking at them. But even at their very best, they're really dumb. They're not very special. And they make a mess all the time. But think about it. On their worst day, what is a lamb? It's your dinner. It sits on your table. And in those days, the, these people would have been very familiar with lambs as an atoning sacrifice. They would have been familiar with the day that really thousands of lambs were sacrificed and blood ran through the streets of Jerusalem. So they would have known, behold the lamb? That doesn't make any sense. That's not what we want. We want a king. We want someone who's come to lead us, to overthrow this oppressive regime that is over our day. But John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb. Maybe those who had been familiar with the Old Testament, many of them at that time would have been as they listened to him. Maybe they could think of Isaiah chapter 53 when it talks about as a lamb he was led to the slaughter and he did not speak a word, but he took upon him the sins of us all as a lamb. Maybe they would have thought about that. And doubtless, John the Baptist was introducing us to Christ in a way that's very unexpected, but a way that transforms each of our lives and hopefully has transformed your life. He was referring to Him as the Lamb of God who would make this sacrifice upon the cross, who would offer His body as the ultimate sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb of God. Christ, as a man like no other, came with a ministry like no other. There was no one who could offer this sacrifice Like Christ. No one at any time, before him or after him, could offer this ministry of reconciliation to the Father, this ministry of redemption through his blood. Christ was a man like no other. We continue on and we could spend much more time on this verse. I wish maybe you'll take some time later to read it. Verse number 30, This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now he's echoing some things that he spoke of in verse number 15 and 27, this humility that Christ was preferred or had a higher rank or was someone greater than John the Baptist. Because people have begun to wonder, Who is John the Baptist? They thought maybe John the Baptist was the Messiah himself. So he was deflecting to Christ. Verse number 31, And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water. The same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Spirit. And so here, we have John the Baptist remembering, he's recalling, this is not happening at this very time, and that'll be important in a second, but he's recalling a time previously when he had baptized Christ. And he saw the Holy Spirit like a dove descending upon Christ. And he realized that Christ not only was coming with the ministry of redemption through this atoning sacrifice upon this cross, but he was coming with the ministry of the Holy Spirit to establish that life in believers, that, that comforter that comes from God. And there was no one at any time who had a ministry like Christ. No one who could come and be this atoning sacrifice. No one else who could come with the ministry of the Holy Spirit like Jesus Christ. So he's introducing us. He's laying this, this groundwork. And he's all this time there's people watching. They're listening to what he's saying. There's some seekers. And we'll be introduced to them in just a couple moments. Verse number 35, I believe it is. Yes, in verse number 35. Verse well, 34, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Verse number 35, This is the third day that we're speaking of. Again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples. Now here we're introduced to the seekers. They're standing with John the Baptist. These are very sincere men. They were following after John the Baptist. They thought that he might, might have been the Messiah. They appreciated his ministry. They were seeking for what God would have for them. These people were very, very sincere. And they thought, quite possibly, they had found who they needed in John the Baptist. They wouldn't have been following him if they didn't. But what does he say? He directs them to Christ. In verse number 36, And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And he's just overwhelmed with this idea that Christ was this atoning sacrifice of God, this Lamb of God. And he repeats it. I think he had been repeating it all day. I think he had been repeating it over and over and over again. He could not get over this idea that Christ was the Lamb of God. And many times as Christians we get over Christ as the Lamb of God. We get over the sacrifice that He made upon the cross. But let us never get over it Because it is through that work, that joy in our lives, that Christ was the Lamb of God, that other people are directed to Him. And here these disciples heard him. Verse number 37, And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. They were seeking. They wanted whoever was the one. They wanted the Messiah. They wanted to know God. And so they followed after Jesus. Now at this point, and this is where what I mentioned earlier about the baptism comes into play. Where had Jesus been? Where was he in this story? You see... In other passages of the Gospels, we know that immediately after he was baptized, what happened? He went out into the desert. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and was tempted of the devil. He went through great physical battle, great spiritual battle, and he was fatigued. He was tired. Now, he was a man, tempted on all points like we are, yet he was God at the same time. And so he had some physical things going on. you imagine you didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights now you're traveling back to this place and you're tired you're exhausted you're fatigued you're spiritually drained you're emotionally drained everything you have is just on empty i had that a little bit last night we've been traveling very very hard these last few days a lot of things going on and when i got to the hotel last night i needed to do some work but i fell asleep eight o'clock i said i'm gonna sleep for an hour Hannah tried to wake me up at one point in the night. That's what she says. I don't remember any of it. And I slept all through the night. And I was nowhere as fatigued as Christ would have been at this point. He was unempty. empty. And as he's coming back from this spiritually, physically exhausting time, he encounters these seekers, these two men. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? He's getting to the heart of the matter. He's saying, What are you seeking? What do you want? And there are people who seek after Christ for their own gain. They seek after Christ for their own reasons. These are the insincere seekers. These are the people who really don't want to know what Christ has to say. And he's cutting to the heart of this matter, as he often does, as he always does. He cuts right to the very heart of the issue. What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted master or teacher. This was a term of respect, and Jesus often would get this term. They would speak to him, and they would call him Rabbi. He was the master teacher continues on, and and they ask, where dwellest thou, or where do you live? The questions that they had, the things that they wanted to know, were not just going to be answered in just a few minutes. They wanted to come and dwell with Jesus. They wanted to come and sit with him and hear him speak to them for hours and pour out his heart. They wanted to question him and interrogate him, just as we surely would if we lived at that time. Now remember, Jesus, he's tired, he's exhausted. What would you say in that moment? You say, come again another day. Maybe give me a week. Give me another time. But what does our Master do? What does our Son of God do? What does the Lamb of God do? What does this Master Teacher do? Just what He does to each of us today. He says, come and see. He invites us in. Christ was a man like no other, with a ministry like no other, but also come to establish a relationship with no other. We see this relationship with Christ as one of grace and truth. In verse number 17 of this passage, the Word of God tells us that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And this is a great, wonderful exhibit of Christ's grace. And this is the same Christ who lives today, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who is making intercession for each and every one of us. This is the same Christ who today gathers His arms around us and says, Come and see. You have questions? That's no problem. You have doubts? That's no problem. You have insecurities? That's no problem. You have all kinds of problems in your life? That's no problem for Him. He says, Come and see. Even at the point when He was at His physical low, he wanted them to come. He wasn't worried about their questions, wasn't worried about their doubts or their confusion. All he wanted was them to come and see. And we continue on, and, and it says, "...they came and saw where he dwelt, and with him that day, for it about the tenth hour." Now, we're about to be introduced to one of the disciples that was there. It was Andrew. Now, I personally believe that the other disciple was the writer of the book of John. I believe it was John the Apostle. Why? Because he remembered specifically... Years later, when he was writing this gospel, the very hour that he went home with Jesus Christ. And in translation, it would be about 4 p.m. He remembered that very moment. Can you remember some moments in your life where you spent time with Jesus? Where you knew who he was in a greater way? I hope we all can, because Christ is at work in our hearts in that same way. There's times in my life where I've been broken on my knees and Christ has shown through. Christ has guided me and drawn me to Himself. And each of us, no matter where we are in our Christian walk, can continue forward because Christ is still saying, come and see. He remembered the very hour. What a wonderful thing that is. Continue on. And one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted, and the Christ. Now, this is very interesting because the revelation that Christ gave them when he was speaking with him, the truth that he imparted remember, I spoke about that relationship of grace and truth. Christ came to bring that. The truth that he spoke convinced these men. That He was the Messiah for whom they had been searching. And when you have questions, when you have doubts, when you have confusion, come to Christ and try Him out. Not so you can get rid of Him. Because when you try Christ, when you get a taste of His grace and truth, you'll realize that He is the one for whom you have been searching. That His love and His truth will transform your life. And what did it do? It caused these men to go find others. It caused these men to be willing to give their lives for the cause of Christ. Many of these men would face persecution that we could never imagine. And it stemmed from this revelation of God, this revelation that Christ was a man like no other. And what did Andrew do? He went, found his brother, and said, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the anointed one. This is the one for whom we have been searching. Every time we see Andrew in in Scripture, we don't know it too much about Him, but He's always bringing people to Christ. He's always bringing something, somebody along, someone who's seeking, someone who's looking for Christ, and He brings them to the One who's the answer to those questions. And I believe that that started here because for Himself, He finally understood that Christ was the answer. He was the Messiah. He was the One that been waiting for. And finally we end in verse number 42. And He brought Him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld Him, In Sunday school this morning, we talk about another time when Christ beheld or gazed or looked upon Peter after Peter had denied him three times. Here we see Christ, for the first time, fixed his gaze upon Peter. He sees more than just a belligerent fisherman, he sees more than just this man who has somewhat of a rough exterior. He sees into who Peter is, but also who Peter will become. He sees who Peter will be in his lowest moments. He sees to who Peter will be in his greatest times, his most effective times. And he beholds Peter. And then he says, "Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Here Christ lets Peter know. He knows him. He knows his family. He knows that his family wasn't very significant, but he knows who Peter was, thou shalt be called Cephas. And this word Cephas is very interesting. It's an Aramaic word that they tried to make a little Greek, so no one understood what it was when they were reading it. So they gave the interpretation, which is being interpreted, a stone, or the word for that is Petros in Greek, or Peter. He says, you'll be Peter, you'll be a stone. And if you think about Peter throughout the earthly ministry of Christ, you say he doesn't re- resemble a stone very much. He wasn't firm. He wasn't strong. He wasn't secure. He was one moment going gung-ho for Christ, and the other moment he was leading the pack as they were retreating, and he was up and down and up and down. But Christ was looking at this man, and he knew that by spending time with Christ, this revelation of grace and truth that would transform his life, that Peter would become one, who really the foundation of the ministry of the apostles came out of, who really led the church in Jerusalem for many, many years at the very beginning, a pivotal time, who preached at Pentecost when thousands were saved, who would give his life for the cause of Christ, who would be willing to take a mighty stand. And he knew that, yes, it would take time, but this man would truly be called Peter or a stone. In this ministry of Christ, this man like no other, this work that He has come to do to bring us atonement through the Lamb of God, to bring us into right relationship with the Father as the Son of God, to be our Master Rabbi or the Master Teacher who would give us this relationship of grace and truth, this One, this Christ, this Messiah, the One who is the answer for every question we have, that understanding of who Christ is transforms our life and causes us to want, to desire, to bring the seeker to Him. And for each of us, we have that task, we have that role, we have that responsibility that when people are seeking, that first, we know who Christ is. We've spent time with Him. We've seen Him at work in our lives. And secondly, that we would bring them to Him. No matter what role you have, we're thinking about Mother's Day today. Maybe you're a mother and you say, I don't do much other than just deal with my children. Your role there is to know Christ and to bring your children to Him. You may be a doctor and you say, I work all the time. I don't do anything but be a doctor. Your role is to know Christ and bring others to Him. No matter what profession, no matter what role in life you have in your vocation, your family, your main responsibility, your Christian role, the role that God has called you to, is to tell others about Him and to know Him personally. And Christ is truly a man like no other. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll turn it over to Pastor. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you in prayer. We thank you for this time. Father, I ask that you would help us through this message and through Your word of, the Word of God to have caught a, just another glimpse of who Christ is. Lord, help that to cause us to desire to know Him even more. And Father, we thank You for the work that He came to do, the work that He has done in my life. And Father, we ask that if there is anyone here who does not know Christ as the Lamb of God, as the Son of God, as the Teacher, as the Messiah, that they would know Him in that way as You have shown us through Your Word that He truly is. Father, for those of us who do, help us to continue learning through Your Word, continue studying about You, and also... Pointing those who are looking, who are seeking, who are questioning to you because in you we find the answers for life that we have. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen.
1: Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.